but eventually you can transform Mars into an Earth-like planet. How would you do that? Uh, you'd, you'd warm it up. Just warm it up. If you with want, a blanket or with what? How would you, how well, would you warm Mars up? You know, it's, it's a long the fast way, way away from the sun. There's the fast way uh, and the slow way. Okay. Uh, give, me, <laughs> give, me the, give me the fast way. The fast way is, is drop thermonuclear weapons over the poles. You're a supervillain. <laughs> That's what a supervillain does. Yeah. Welcome to D-Next, the Innovation Entrepreneur Podcast, and I'm your host, Paul Coides. On this episode, we take a very serious look at the future through the lens of technology and through the mind and words of author Jonathan Taplin and his new book, The End of Reality. This is D-Next. Jonathan, thanks so much for being a part of DNX. I'd like to brag to everybody about just the caliber of people uh, I get to talk to uh, from around the world and, you know, parts of our history. And you are a big part of that. So I'll, I'll be talking about this talk for a long time uh, to come. But thanks for being a part of this series. My pleasure. You You strike me as somebody who thinks a lot about the future. A, am I correct in that assumption? And B, have you always been that way? Yeah. I mean, I guess so. I mean, my early days working for Bob Dylan and the band and George Harrison, uh, the present was so vital that we didn't think that much about the future. And of course, when you're, you know, 22, you're not, thinking about the future so much. But I guess in the mid to late 80s, I began thinking about the future because at that point, some things were happening involving the early iterations of the internet and obviously the early use of the personal computer and stuff like that. And so that became part of what my life was and then in the 90s i i invented the and built the first streaming video on demand service called the entertainer and so that was a real bet on the future and it was one that that didn't actually work out that well because we were a a little early and broadband didn't come as fast as we had hoped and b the movie studios began to get paranoid about us uh, in the beginning of the 2000s that we were getting a little too successful. And so they stopped supplying us with the movies. And we went from having about 6,000 movies on the service to about six. And so I had to shut it down and then sued them all in federal antitrust court. And, um, because I was suing them all, I couldn't go back to being a movie producer. So I had to, uh, well, I didn't have to, but I, I did go to work uh, as a professor at the USC school, Annenberg School, and um, eventually won the antitrust suit. And then I could afford to be a professor and 
continued, started something called the Annenberg Innovation Lab, which was, of course, all about the future. And I've been thinking about it ever since. And I mean, just look at now. I mean, even it reminds me telling me that story. I, I spoke to Andy Hertzfeld uh, a while ago about the Apple spinoff company uh, in the 90s uh, that uh, went broke um, and they blew through all their money. Um, but what they were developing back then is pretty much the blueprint for our whole experience with the internet right now in terms of, you know, uh, touch screens and iPads that were, you know, back then just sort of in a research lab. And it strikes me that your, you know, your instincts are so poignant. Uh, you know, sometimes it just takes time for the rest of the world to, to catch up, which brings me then to my first question, which I think is uh, a preoccupation of mine these days, but um, it has to do with that, you know, fragile and touchy subject of democracy. Um, you know, and this and congratulations on your on your latest book, by the way, this is sort of why I wanted to really talk to you. Um, is this a dangerous time for democracy, truly? Or, you know, have we been here before and, you know, we'll be here again? So the book is called The End of Reality. And the subtitle is How Four Billionaires Are Selling Us Fantasy Future of the Metaverse, Mars and Crypto. And part of the fantasy future is what happens in politics. In other words, if if Tim Snyder, the Yale professor who provides one of the epigrams of the book, he says, to abandon facts is to abandon freedom. If nothing is true, then all is spectacle. The biggest wallet pays for the most blinding lights. So the four people that I'm talking about, Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, Mark Andreessen, and Peter Thiel are the biggest wallets paying for the most blinding lights. And their world is a world of hype. Uh, Elon Musk is still hyping the idea that we could go to Mars, uh, humans. This is an absurd, absurd idea. It would cost $10 trillion to take 50 people to Mars. Uh, once they got there, they wouldn't necessarily know how to get back. And they'd have to build some kind of space city that would shield them from the radiation, which is so strong on Mars that exposure of even five minutes would give you skin cancer. Uh, they would have no oxygen. I mean, it's just one of these egotistical things. I mean, the, in NASA, there's a saying, no Buck Rogers, no Bucks, which is this notion that U.S. and NASA won't pay for space travel unless it involves humans that can be then uh, made famous and, and help to raise more money for NASA, you know, John Glenn types. So... Uh, but its role into politics is that these people, specifically Teal, who was on the who was on the board of Facebook, and Musk, who controls Twitter X, are very right, hard right wing p 
people who do not believe in democracy. Uh, Thiel has said democracy and capitalism are not compatible, and he he wants capitalism, but he's not interested in democracy. He told the Wall Street Journal that 2% of the people know what's going on and the rest of the people are sheep. Um, Musk believes that he can have this platform with no consequences. So he buys Twitter, immediately fires all the people who are in the content moderation thing and declares himself a free speech absolutist. Neo-Nazis, anti-Semites flood back onto the platform, led by Kanye West and other uh, Cretans. And um, then he complains that the Anti-Defamation League has the gall to inform advertisers that Twitter X is a cesspool and says that the Jews are trying to wreck his business. Classic old fascist trope. And then he's like shocked when people like call him out for this. Um, so, you know, I'm, I think these people have to be brought to heal. You know, they're not good for the society. And what, I mean, what, why is this happening? Why as a public, are we just accepting all of this? I mean, is part of that, you know, blinding light, just technology itself? Are we all, or the rest of the, the not the 2% at the top, uh, trying to figure out what's going on in technology? Is that the game changer that has sort of reset the table to open up the stage for, you know, people like this? Or why is this happening? Look, as much as I'd like to blame this all on you know, hard right Republicans. I, I must say that the original blame falls on Bill Clinton and Al Gore. When they passed the Digital Millennium uh, Copyright Act and other things, uh, they gave technology companies like Facebook and Twitter a liability exclusion a shield called safe harbor it's technically called section 230 of the communications decency act and basically what it says is that the those platforms shall be deemed not a publisher but simply a platform and that you can't sue them for anything that's on their platform so they got a special deal and that continues to this day. So whereas Rupert Murdoch had to pay $780 million uh, to the voting machine company for promulgating falsehoods, uh, neither Facebook nor Twitter, which is far more powerful in promulgating falsehoods, have had to pay anything. So uh, they're just kind of out there in a you know, a kind of libertarian dream free world. Now, they call themselves libertarians, but they're not that. They're just crony capitalists. If you think about Elon Musk, all the money for SpaceX comes from the US government, NASA. All the money for Starlink, his satellite company, comes from other governments. Um, all 
you know, the difference between Tesla as a profitable company and Tesla as a non-profitable company is the fact that he sells green car credits to the other auto manufacturers to the tune of two or three billion dollars a year. So without the government, Peter Thiel wouldn't exist either. Uh, you know, Palantir is his surveillance capitalism company is funded mostly by governments uh, because they're the ones that want to spy on you. Uh, Mark Andreessen is uh, deeply, deeply involved in the military industrial complex, providing the software to run most of the drones and especially the new autonomous weapons that is otherwise known as killer robots um, that U.S. and Russia are, are, are developing. Everybody else in the world thinks that it's the stupidest idea in the world to have uh, AI having the power to pull the trigger and kill somebody. Um, you know, quite frankly, the early work on killer robots shows that at, at 50 yards, they can't tell the difference between a human carrying a gun and a human carrying a broom. But you were going to let them have the uh, choice to kill somebody. So, um, I'm, you know, I'm worried. Uh, and, and I don't, I think, you know, I've used the term techno determinism. It's the sense that these people know what they're doing and they have our best interest in, in at heart. And I don't think it's true. And it doesn't sound to me like you think, um, and you're probably right, that we are ready for what technology uh, is going to bring about in the next decade or so. We have no idea. I mean, let's just take two aspects of transhumanism. So p transhumanism is the notion that we can radically alter the body's ability to sustain itself um, and sustain consciousness, even if the body gives out, through some melding of your consciousness and an AI. So that's known as the singularity. Uh, so Peter Thiel is pretty confident he's going to live to the age of 160, and he'd like to live to 200. Um, but if, if he doesn't make it that far, he believes that he will be able to download his consciousness into an AI that will keep giving us the pearls of wisdom of Peter Thiel on infinitum. There's a second aspect of, of transhumanism, though, which is that the CRISPR genetic editing tools could ostensibly be applied to in vitro embryos. Now, they've done some editing when they've detected a very specific tendency towards a disease like sickle cell. Uh, but the scary part is that it would very possibly make it uh, okay to test an embryo and say, uh, this child will have a, be in the 60th percentile of the SA2 score 
this child will not have Coco Goff's twitch response, so she won't be a good athlete. Uh, this child will have male pattern baldness by 50. And for a lot of money, the parents could get their child's DNA edited. This is called designer babies. Um, so this is a big question. Francis Fukuyama, who wrote The End of History, has said that this is transhumanism is the world's most dangerous idea because it would eliminate the whole basis of the American product. The idea that all men are created equal would obviously not exist if for millions of dollars you could pay for a much longer life or for millions of dollars you could pay for your kid to be the smartest kid in his class. So um, the ethical issues surrounding all these technologies are huge. It's, uh, you know, given the very scary, you know, uh, diagnosis and, and uh, prediction of what what uh, is just around the corner, again, it, it, it floors me that um, there's something about it that I guess is so seductive that people are just going along is it is this i mean I, I don't want to call it an agenda necessarily but is this being driven by the four people that 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 you mentioned uh you know um is it just this amount of charisma that they may have to um you know pull the zeitgeist along with them or why is it that we're sort of going into this really dangerous kind of hole i think well you know you have to maybe ask Someone like uh, Walter Isaacs, who's just written a biography on mm -hmm. Elon Musk that's 600 pages long, and essentially seems to, from what I've read from the excerpts that have been in the Wall Street Journal and other places, seems to have this kind of like, well, this guy is kind of a, a rogue character but he's just a businessman that we should think and we've always had businessmen like this and this is this is you know he treats him as if you know part of his his agenda is dangerous but part of it is really important um as if going to mars was really an important thing um so if this person like you know, Isaacson, who was the president of the Aspen Institute, just can take this kind of, well, on the one hand, on the other hand, point of view on Elon Musk. I think that's typical and dangerous. And look, Elon Musk has 130 million followers on Twitter. Um, you know, Ross Douthat, the conservative columnist, has said clearly that Musk is the most powerful voice on the right in America. So um, I think it's an open question as to whether um, people are just wowed by this or, um, you know, there's a lot of propaganda involved. I mean, if you think about it, if you look at the chart of Tesla stock for the first seven years, the stock kind of 
dribbled along. And then Elon decided to get on Twitter. And within a few years, with the help of a lot of bots that he bought, uh, he was able to get himself up to 100 million followers. And once he had that, he was able to hype Tesla stock to a level that no one has ever seen. I mean, Tesla is worth more than all the other car companies combined. Right. Um, so, you know, and that's, you know, as Musk has said before, you, you know, fake it till you make it. But um, it, it's, you have to wonder. Uh, and it's interesting well, to me, I, I briefly went to university with Elon Musk many years ago. I, I, I don't think we ever uh, spoke. Perhaps we did. I just didn't realize it. But when you look at what he's become now, um, how is this different, you know, dialing it back to the you know 50s and 60s to people like Elvis or the Beatles or who, Bob Dylan, uh, that maybe the generation before them did not understand what the appeal was and the perceived frivolity of, you know, going to Mars may have been what they thought of for, you know, rock and roll or just the hippies, you know, that cultural awakening. What, what do you see as being different this time? I mean, I'm not suggesting that we're too old to understand what's going on, but how is that different than just what the rock star fantasy was back then? Well, let's just start from the beginning. Elvis, was not going to cost you as a taxpayer your share of $10 trillion. You know, Elon Musk is not going to finance his own way to Mars. I promise you that. Mm -hmm. He's going to get the you, the taxpayer, to do that. So that's the first thing. Second thing, Elvis Presley had no control over a war in Ukraine and was not operating as an independent operator outside the government, State Department, Defense Department policy. Third place, and I would argue that whether it was Bob Dylan, who I worked for, or Elvis, or Little Richard, these people improved people's spirits, made them feel better, made them think that they were part of something important. And Elon Musk doesn't do that. He goes on and rails against the Jews or against the New York Times or against whoever he wants. And he sows distrust, hatred, and um, makes people crazy. And so I don't think there's any comparison between those two things. I mean, quite honestly, the culture that if Elon Musk is the most important culture hero today, and let's say Bob Dylan was the most important culture hero in 1965, I would say the contrast in the culture is radical. Right. The culture in 1965 was optimistic. It was hopeful. Of course, there was a war going on, but we were, we were working to get out of that. And the people were on the streets and, felt they had some power. Today, the culture is totally nihilistic. People have feel they have no power. They feel they're just a cog in a machine. And these people 
want to be the runners of the machine. They're the people who actually think that they could be gods. I, I, I'm not kidding about that either. I mean, when when the guy who wrote the singularity was asked, did he believe in God? And he said, not yet. And yeah. so this notion of, of this kind of astronomical power over humanity is something that we all have to worry about. And, you know, I, I would say 80% of the politicians are clueless as to what's really going on. The fact that crypto is still existing without regulation is astonishing to me. Um, and so, I mean, these people are not geniuses. Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter will go down in history as one of the worst deals ever made in American business history. And yet it's mythologized uh, like nothing else I can remember in recent yeah, exactly. history. Exactly. Exactly. You know, I I I agree with you. Uh, and I it does actually concern me because I think that, um, you know, talking about things like zeitgeist, you know, a lot of these uh, people who rise, like Paul Simon, his famous line that every generation throws a hero up the pop charts in one way or another. Um, and it's often either a reflection of where we are, if we are nihilistic, or maybe, you know, we become a, a reflection of those people who, who we follow. Who, in your mind then, uh, and again, because I, I deeply respect your judgment on these things uh, and your insight, who do you think is the most influential person alive right now? Is it Elon Musk or uh, is there... Are there others? Well, Elon Musk obviously thinks he's the most influential person. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, hard for me to say. You know, I'm you know, I'm my prayer, my hope is that there will be another cultural renaissance. You know, I mean, if you think about the very idea of the the notion of rebirth. It sometimes comes after an event like the pandemic. You know, I mean, the, the Renaissance in Florence, Michelangelo and Leonardo started right after the end of the Black Death. Um, you know, so maybe maybe you, you rethink things. Maybe people rethink what their priorities are. Uh I mean, it hasn't escaped me that this summer, um, the largest, most highest grossing pop music tours were led by two women, mm -hmm. Taylor Swift and Beyonce. And both of them thematically were all, I mean, Beyonce called her tour renaissance. Uh, they're all about rebirth. They're all about finding yourself. They're all about being vulnerable. They're all about... The, just the opposite of Jason Aldean. If you come into my little town, I'm going to kick your ass. Or Young Thug, I'm going to, you know, how, this is how many people I've killed. You know, it's all this other kind of more hopeful thing. So maybe, maybe there's a change starting. Maybe people don't want this nihilistic, um, and dark culture. I mean, if you think about it, 
what have we been watching for the last 15 years? The Sopranos, you know, uh, Breaking Bad, Mad Men, Succession, you know, all these stories in which these horrible people are struggling for power and not a one of them has a bit of grace in their soul at all. They're killers. They may not actually kill people like Tony Soprano did, but they're, they are emotional killers. And, and, you know, Isaacson describes Musk in the demon mode as if he's a killer, you know, and, and that's, you know, because he's obviously on the spectrum and has admitted that, you know, that comes and goes. How powerful do you think storytelling is, or maybe still is, in setting a mindset? I mean, you, you talk about these examples of popular culture. And I think back to, as an example, you know, uh, I'm a big fan of a concert for Bangladesh. I think it just set a standard for, you know, a whole new way of thinking about um, how, you know, uh, just elevated the role of the entertainer into something else and i think it was you know in my mind just magical but this this idea of stories you know shaping culture uh is that is that something that uh you think is still real today in 2023 well in the in the end of reality uh my new book i i make the statement that Culture leads politics. You know, there's an old saying, um, culture eats strategy for breakfast every morning. Uh, (laughs) So I think culture eats politics for breakfast every morning. So I I think it's the only thing that matters. And uh, the problem is culture goes in cycles. And Jacques Barzan, the the incredible historian who wrote Dawn to Decadence, has said that these cycles where there's really vital culture don't often last very long. I mean, if you think about the 60s culture, it lasted from about 62, 63, so Bob Dylan and then the Beatles hit until about 1978 1979 and that was it mm-hmm. and then you know now we're into kind of uh neoliberal doggy dog uh gordon gecko wall street that kind of culture so i mean i think culture has a lot to do with it and i also think that you know we've also lived in a fantasy culture you know, if you if you think about the Marvel comic cinematic universe as they, I, I can't believe they use that term cinematic, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's not, this is not great art. It's as Marty Scorsese, who I spend a lot of time working with, says, it's, it's like theme park rides. And I mean, I mean, I would agree with that. And I'm not a, I think this idea of the this very prevalent idea of the multiverse being everywhere, I think it's one of the most dangerous ideas to ever implant into a young generation for any reason. But um, and yet, 
it's deeply entertaining and yet it's based on you know age-old mythology that we've been you know going back to that same story set for thousands of years what does that say about us well look the metaverse could only con be conceived by somebody who has you know some kind of autistic spectrum disorder who doesn't want to look anybody in the eye you know only someone like that could think that you want to spend seven hours with a helmet over your eyes and be in a pretend universe and the truth is that the dogs aren't eating the dog food i mean even mark zuckerberg is giving up on the metaverse you notice all of what meta is talking about now is generative ai they aren't talking about the metaverse at all because they tried it and if you go on horizon world the the world that they spent a billion dollars creating there's nobody there it's a ghost town so uh i i think and and look we'll look back at crypto and we'll realize that this was one of the great pyramid schemes of all times. And, you know, in 10 or 15 years, no one will know about Bitcoin. Uh, you know, my guess is we'll never send humans to Mars. Uh, and as for living to 200, I'd be willing to bet that Peter Thiel won't make it to 200. Of course, I won't be around to collect on the bet, but that's <laughs> okay. As, as we as we round out our time here, um, a couple of questions. I I have a pretty good sense of what you're worried about, and if I'm reading it properly, what you're warning us about. Um, but are you at the same time hopeful for the future? Totally. And totally. why? Because, why? Because there is a large group of people who are fighting the machine who don't want to live a life in which nature is replaced by an ai and some of them are musicians like i'm the chairman of the board of the americana music foundation so i'm going to nashville next week and and americana fest and there's going to be lots of young 20 something bluegrass players and beautiful country music singers and gospel singers and Tejano Mexican music players. And, and then, then sometime I'm going to go up into Maine where there's, there's a female chef on Deer Island. That's, that's cooking the most incredible stuff and everything that she cooks is from a farm that's within 10 acres of her restaurant. And it's a two-star Michelin restaurant. Um, I believe that there are people who are trying to design housing for poor people with 3D printers that could be made for sixty to $70,000 a house for a decent-sized house. That, that a young family could live in that, that happened to have been homeless. And, you know, in Los Angeles, they can't seem to build a house for under $700,000 for poor people. So, I mean, it's, 
there's lots of ways technology can help us get to the future. And needless to say, we've seen, seen the cost of solar and wind drop radically. So it's much more affordable and much cheaper than coal or oil. So all of the technology pieces for us to fix our planet are here. But here are these four people who are the leaders of the technology business who are off wanting to go to Mars or or live in the metaverse. I mean, it's insane. So I mean, it, I I don't think it. You know, let's deal with the real problems. Let's not pretend we have to just escape. Okay, and one one last thing. Yeah. There's a bunch of actors and a bunch of writers who are picketing in front of every big movie studio in this town today. I'm in L.A. They're fighting the machine, right? Because Marvel would love to put every screenplay that it ever created into a large learning model and have a generative AI chatbot churn out screenplays which they would own 100% and not have to pay any writer. Now, there's a book right now in that the copyright office will not let you copyright something written by a machine. So they'll probably get some starving screenwriter to fix it up and put his name on it. But still, they'll own it. And they instead of having paying $750,000 for a screenplay, they'll pay, you know, $30,000. So, look. I think we're there's a good possibility that we fix it. I, I'm reminded of a a quote from Camus, the rebel. He said, We're at the extremities now. At the end of this tunnel of darkness, however, there is invariably a light which we already divine and for which we only have to fight to ensure it's coming. All of us among the ruins are preparing a renaissance beyond the limits of nihilism. That's our task. I uh I look forward to this renaissance. I uh you know I think I think um I think what you're talking about is gonna resonate with people, Jonathan. And I think uh you know we owe you a, a great debt uh for for at least showing us you know part of the way and, and again it's up to us. Uh, thank you very much, Jonathan. Uh, a wonderful way to uh, to round out this talk. I appreciate your time. It's my pleasure.